Revelation chapter 3. Um, I don't have any announcements for you, so we'll get right into it. If you need a Bible, if you just uh, give some kind of an indication, we'll make sure that you have a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our study. And tonight we'll take the first six verses here in chapter 3. The letter to the church in Sardis. John writes, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. In every culture and society, and in every age of man's existence, both past and present, a name is intended to mean something much more than simply just a means of identification. Names commonly, or by intention, imply something. We name our children. Not something that just sounds good. You know, what's it going to sound like when their name is spoken? But we name our children something that means something to us. Something perhaps that, that has a meaning of something that we hope to see take place in their lives. Or, or maybe something that is indicative of a prayer that we have for them. Or we name them after someone who has been an influence in our lives in some way in hopes that we'll pass it on to them. And the name is intended to carry with it some weight, some meaning, an essence beyond just ID. The name of a company or an industry or a business begins to take on a meaning or carry a, you know, a, a weight or have a reputation or a standard that's associated with it as time goes on. You know, when I say the name to you, Honda, and we all, of course, know that that's a, a car company, but the name means more than just simply the circled H that you see on the back of so many vehicles. You know that when I say Honda, there's a reputation that stands behind that name because of what it's become. When I say to you the name Kmart, you know, that also brings images into your mind of broken things and garbage piles, you know, and, and all the rest. Because, because the name of something carries more weight than just identification. When I say Apple... You know, as in Apple computers. Oh, we, you know, th there's an implication there. There's something more than just identification. A, a name 
causes us to form opinions, to give defining attributes to something because it means something to us. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, he said that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Now, Solomon wasn't saying that, you know, be careful that you use the correct number of syllables and that it's a name that's easy to pronounce. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the essence or the meaning or the reputation that's behind the name that's given. A good name, a good reputation, a, 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 a worthy name that lives up to all that it implies is better rather to be chosen than great riches. The name Christian is also intended to mean something more than just a term of identification. It's meant to carry a meaning, substance. It's intended to convey certain opinions and certain attributes and ideas in someone's mind when it is spoken, the name Christian. Now, ironically, the name Jesus and the name Christian are supposed to mean the same thing. The book of Acts tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and it was a term, a derogatory term. Literally, it meant little Christs. Boy, that's a badge of honor, isn't it? That the name that was given to these people is that they were so conformed and molded into the image of Jesus Christ that they bore his name. There was something in their reputation that earned them the name Christian. And the two things are to be synonymous. Jesus Christ and Christian or little Christ are one and the same. He gives his name, he writes his name upon his people. And they're to hold the same reputation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church and he said that we are ambassadors for Christ. He used those words. He called us ambassadors. An ambassador is one who is sent forth to hold the place of or in the name of the one whom is sending him. So if I'm an ambassador of the United States, I'm being sent in the name of the United States. And if I'm an ambassador for Christ, then I'm being sent in the name of Christ to carry his name. Now, it goes without saying that Christian conveys a different image in the mind of many than Jesus does. Oftentimes, perhaps you encounter this too, when I share with people, strangers or people on the job, and I talk to them, oftentimes what their biggest gripe is, is with the church, the Christians. I'll share Christ, but they respond towards Christians. Well, you know, the church is just, and I'll say, well, wait a minute, when did the church come into this? I'm talking to you about Christ. Yeah, yeah, but the church is just full of hypocrites. You know, they're all looking for... No, wait, 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 wait. What about Christ? Yeah, I know the church is full of hypocrites because I'm part of the church and I know it full well. But let me ask you, Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. Do you have a problem with that? No. Well, Jesus said to love your enemies and to do good to those that hurt you and despitefully use you. Do you have a problem with that? No, I don't have a problem with that at all. Well, then what's your problem with Jesus? Well, I guess I don't have a problem with Jesus. But his followers, you know. 
Perhaps you've seen that bumper sticker, Lord, save me from your followers, you know. Why? Because so often the church has failed to carry the name of Christ and give to it the reputation and the weight, the worth that it deserves. Because the name Christian, meant to be a good name, has been tarnished in so many places. The church at Sardis, the church that we're looking at in our study tonight, represents the church that is called Christian in name, and yet there lacks the weight and the substance behind it in actuality, in truth. Jesus opens as he addresses this church that carries the name, but not the weight or the substance. And he begins talking to them in verse 1. He says, unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Now, geographically, Sardis was located inland from the Aegean Sea. If you can kind of picture modern-day Turkey, historically, it's Asia Minor. And we talked about the first three churches that were there upon the coast of the Aegean Sea and how now these last ones are inland from them. You know, if you would move towards the east, you would find the, the, the area or the town of, of Sardis, the city of Sardis, and it's inland and it was built upon a small elevated plateau which rises sharply above the Hermes Valley. And the unique thing about the city of Sardis is that it was kind of this flat-topped mountain, this Acropolis, if you would. And on three sides, there was a, a steep, unscalable wall. So they were fortified by this natural structure that their city was built upon. And the only access into the city was a steep uphill climb on one side that you could, you know, kind of gain access in. And so it was a very safe city. They were secure in that sense. The only problem with that city being situated in that way and in that location is that as civilization and commerce became more complex and the structure of the city began to grow, the plateau became too small to contain the needs of the city. And so the, the, the solution to the problem was that they built another city on the lower level you know, on the ground level underneath it, and it kind of became, you know, kind of the more convenient way to operate there in, in that place. What happened, though, over time is that the ease of having access to the lower city kind of made the upper city obsolete. Nobody wanted to make the extra distance or go the extra mile to go up into the, you know, the higher region because of what it would take to get up there. And so everything kind of shifted to the lower city and the upper city kind of just became sort of an acropolis, uh, a meeting place where the temples were, where you would, you know, go for church, if you would, or to meditate. But there was nothing really happening up there any longer. It just became less and less significant as the ease of having the lower city um, it, it increased in that way. And, and this situation is what gave Sardis its name. Sardis literally means double city. And that's what it was. It was a double city. There was the upper Acropolis, and then there was the lower place of commerce. And though that was the situation geographically, it lended to their problem spiritually. The same destiny that befell them physically and that the, the upper city, the fortified place, became too small and too inconvenient. And so a second city was constructed. The same thing happened to the church there spiritually. 
The church was started in a strong way. If it wasn't birthed and planted by the Apostle Paul himself, it no doubt was done through his influence or through those who, that were ministering with him, whether it was Timothy or, or one of the others. But the church started strong. It was birthed in the power of the Spirit and in the presence of the Word. It was fortified and defended, if you would, by great spiritual defenses and provisions of the Lord. And they were strong, as were all the churches there in Asia Minor. But as life became complex, and as things began to impede upon the spiritual priorities of the people there in the city of Sardis, kind of a second city, if you would, was built in the lives of these people. A more convenient, a more conducive to the culture arena which people operated within, making the spiritual life more obsolete. The higher life of holiness was that that was up here. It was something that, you know, used to be stronger. It used to be what we were known for, but it's too complex now. Life is is too busy and the culture just doesn't allow for that. And so something is built on a lower plane underneath it. And that will always have its place. It's not going anywhere. It's our identity. It's who we are as a city, as a people. We are the church in Sardis. But in all practical purposes, long ago that city was abandoned. And the more convenience of of operating in a worldly life, just for the sake of doing the things that are necessary to operate within this world, a second city was formed. A double life happened in that place. And over time... The first, the most important, the priority, the spiritual, became more and more obscure until it remained in the lives of the people here in Sardis to be nothing but a former glory and a means of identity. That yes, we are Christians. That is the religion that we adhere to. It is the doctrine and the creed that we confess. But beyond that, the place that it plays in our everyday lives and in the function that we have in society is very little, if anything at all. It's nothing more than a name now that we call ourselves. We are Christians. And thus, in this letter that Jesus personally addresses to this church here in Sardis, you find that it is only one or it is one of two in all seven of these letters of which Jesus has nothing positive to say to this church. There is absolutely no positive affirmation given to them at all because they had ceased to be a power spiritually. They had ceased to be devoted to the Lord practically. They were nothing more than just an existence carrying upon a name. The church in Sardis. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, Jesus tells John to write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you recall from our previous studies in these seven churches, in every one of these letters, Jesus addresses himself in a very specific and meaningful way to the church to whom he is speaking. And to this church, he addresses himself as the one that has the seven spirits of God. And we heard that before in chapter 1, when John saw Jesus glorified, and he was the one that had the seven spirits of God. And here Jesus tells the church in Sardis that he is the one that possesses these things. Why would Jesus address himself in this way 
to the church in Sardis. In John's gospel, the third chapter, at the onset of Jesus' ministry, when things were starting to really happen and the miracles were manifesting and the word and the gospel was going forth, the religious leaders of the time were baffled. They didn't know what to do with this man whom some called a prophet. Others said he was the savior. And yet he was an affront and an offense to the religion of the Jews. And so a man of the Pharisees, a ruler, a pastor, if you would, came to Jesus by night so as not to be seen or to make political waves with his peers at the time. A man named Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus and he said to him, teacher. We know that you are come from God because no one can do the things that you do except God be with him. And and Jesus answered in a very, you know, kind of uh, not, not addressing really what Nicodemus was asking. And Jesus replies to him and he says, no one can see the kingdom of God except he is born again. And Nicodemus grew confused and he said, well, how can a man be born when he is old? And and Jesus gets into this discussion with him. And then Jesus says in John chapter 3 verse 8, he uses this language. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, or the wind blows where it wills. And you hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Speaking of the spiritual birth and the spiritual life to which all of us are familiar and that we've all been called into, he likens it unto the wind. And throughout the Bible, the wind is consistently a symbol or a picture of the Holy Spirit and his movement in the life of a believer. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, it says there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind in the house. In John chapter 20, just before Jesus ascended, it says that he breathed on them the pneuma, the breath of God, the ruach in the Hebrew, the wind. He breathed on them and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. In John chapter 3, again here that we just read, the wind used as a, a, a type or a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. Why does the Bible use the wind as an illustration or a symbol, a signet, Of the Holy Spirit's work. Because the wind. Isn't something that can be seen physically. I cannot hold up for you a jar of wind. And say hey this is wind. And if I put it on a shelf. With a bunch of other jars. With other things in it. Like fire and water. And you know all the rest. And you just pick out the one that's wind. You wouldn't be able to do it. Because it's not something that can be seen. It's not something that can be described in its physical form because it has no physical form. But rather, it's something that must be experienced and felt in order to be understood. It cannot be seen or described. It must be experienced and felt. And thus it becomes a very good picture of this spiritual birth that Jesus is talking about. Now, I could get fans in here, and if you're sitting over in that back corner over there, you're probably having trouble hearing me because of those fans. I know what that's like. That's where I stand on Sunday mornings. And I could synthetically produce some of the effects of wind, but it still wouldn't be wind. Because wind has its origin in the heavens. The same thing is true for someone who is called a Christian. 
The name Christian means nothing to those that look on in and of itself. Just like wind to someone who's never experienced wind. would well, You could tell them wind, but they wouldn't know what wind is. And, and Christian, some of the attributes of a Christian, yes, they can be synthetically produced. We can read of some of the things that Jesus did, and we can kind of act Christ-like for a little while. But it's still not wind. It's still not the spirit. It's still not real. It's not life. It's just something that's being imitated or, or, or done. But the substance that really makes a person a little Christ or a Christian can only come from the work of God's Holy Spirit within our lives. Because the synthetic things that we produce outwardly only last for a while, for a season. They only go so deep, but then they wear off and what's really on the inside manifests itself and comes out. But when a person is born and moved of the Holy Spirit of God within their life, it's something that's real, it's lasting, and it's powerful. And thus, Jesus, talking to this church that has lost all form, or I'm sorry, all substance of what makes a church a representation of Christ, he addresses himself to them as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. We saw that that is the complete power and work of the Holy Spirit. It's in the hand of Christ to give. That which gives life to a church, to a Christian, to a ministry, to an individual, to a family, to a mother, to an employee, that which gives the real essence of life and what makes all things work is in the hand of Jesus Christ to give. And it was at the disposal of this church, though long ago they had left off its priority within them personally. The only way that you and I can live the Christian life and really live it in a way that gives it the substance worthy of its name is by the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And that can only come from Jesus because he's the one that holds it in his hand. And the amount of spiritual power we possess and the amount of practical Christian living that we can produce is going to be directly related to how close and how linked we are with him because he's the one that holds it in his hand and he's the one that imparts it to those called by his name. It comes from him and thus he addresses himself to them in this way saying, I am the one that is the source of your life. And in a minute, he's going to tell them outrightly that they are dead. Again, in verse 1, he goes right on and jumps right into his negative observation. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and are dead. You have a name as though you're alive. You're called by those that you're the Christians, that you follow the resurrected and the living Christ. But as I look on you with my eyes as a flame of fire, As I, my eye that sees all things, scans over and looks at you and what is going on inside your heart and what's coming out of your life, my observation is that no matter how alive you look on the outside, for all intents, you are dead. You know, it's interesting that a chicken is never more alive to the eye than when you separate it from its head. You know, I've done that before. I've seen it. It's Wild, if you ever get a chance to do that, you know. But it's dead. It's not alive anymore. There's nothing there, but it has a name as though it lives. 
Now, if it's true that a name carries with it connotations, then the problem with that is that you can survive for a long time on just a name. Long after the reputation has been, you know, kind of smeared internally, it can go on working and living as though nothing was wrong. It can go for a long time. You know, once a a reputation is established and a name is trusted, then you can ride on that. Because it takes time for cracks and for failure to manifest in a way that, 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 you know, things will come out to the light. You know, for example, you know, we all know about McDonald's. You know, and we've seen the signs that say billions and billions served. And, and there's a reputation there. You know, McDonald's, you know, that's where you go to get a cheap meal. You know, but over time, some quality control issues come to the surface. And a little bit more information is kind of leaked out into the public sector. And you kind of realize what's going on behind the scenes. And you realize you might not want to go for that double cheeseburger, you know, and, and, and eat that fourth Big Mac, you know, because you don't really know what's in that product. Taco Bell, you know, that, the big buzz now of what really is in the beef. Or is it beef? You know, we don't know. Toyota. It used to be the picture of stability, neck and neck with Honda as far as foreign competitiveness and the cutting edge of of reliable technology. But yet, what's coming out now is that a, a couple of years ago, there was some compromise in the way things were done. Some of the things weren't quality controlled as they had been in the decade previously, but what happened, the reputation and the name carried it well beyond the point where the integrity declined and dropped off. You can go for a long time on a name. The name may still be good, but the quality may be gone. And Jesus says to this church, you have a name as though you live, yet you are dead. You know, one thing that I don't remember a a whole lot about high school and the things that I learned in it. But one thing that I remember that, that just fascinated me when I was in earth science in ninth grade is realizing or learning that when the sun sets, you know, we all have seen a sunset, we understand that, that when you're watching a sunset and you see that last little sliver of yellow light disappear beyond the horizon, that that actually happened seven minutes ago. That, that, That seven minutes, you know, before you saw it, it was already gone. But because the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth, it takes seven minutes for the light to get here from there. So, so it was already gone. When you see it disappear, it, it was gone a long time ago. And do you know the same thing can happen in the spiritual life of a church or of an individual believer? Long before the light actually disappears, the sun may have already set. And it takes time for what's on the inside to manifest itself on the outside. And Jesus looks at this church and he says, you have a name as though you live and yet you are dead. And notice in the next couple of verses here in verses two and three, that it isn't something that happened immediately. It didn't happen overnight. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. And then he says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. There's two words that are used in these verses, verses 2 and 3. The word remain that you see there in verse 2. 
And the word remember that's used at the opening of verse 3. The, the word remain or the remnant means that which is left over after the first part is gone. Meaning that, that, it, that it wasn't something that happened suddenly or all at once, but that there was something that was there and then little by little it began to erode and it was still yet in the process of eroding even at the time of this letter, strengthen the things which remain. And then in verse 3, he uses the word remember, which means to call to mind the former things. Remember what once was that no longer is. Something that over time eroded and slowly disappeared and realized that it wasn't always like it is now. Understand, church, that death, whether it be in a church or whether it be in an individual, always happens by degrees. It never happens suddenly or all at once. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Or if you have a New King James or an NIV, it uses the word drift away. Lest at any time they should drift away. And it's an incredible picture of how this process of death within a church or a Christian happens by degrees. It's kind of like if you go to the ocean in the summertime. And, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, just loving going to the ocean. Still do. And, you know, you go out there, you know, and you grab a football or a Frisbee or a a bodyboard or something. And you go out and and you're just going to play in the ocean waves. And so, you, you know, you put your black umbrella there and you lay out your blanket and and then you just go out and you just say, I'm going to just, that's the the umbrella right there. I know right where I am. And and so you go out into the ocean, you begin to play and and you're right in the same spot. You haven't moved at all. You're just, you're, you know, maybe catching a wave or, or, or splashing or swimming a little bit, but you're just standing right where you're standing. But after a while you look up and you say, well, where's that black umbrella? And you look for it, and, and now there's like a bunch of umbrellas, and, and it doesn't look like it used to look, and there's still a lifeguard chair every 50 yards or so, and, and you just can't figure it out. And then finally you realize that, you know, 500 yards down the beach is where, you know, you, you left your, your black umbrella and where you were. Why? What happened? You drifted. There was a tide. There was a current that you couldn't feel. There was something that was carrying you imperceptibly that was keeping you or or moving you away from where you were initially anchored. And by degrees, little by little, you found yourself lost or you didn't know where you were anymore. And that's the way death or compromise happens within the Christian life. It's little by little. You drift slowly away, an imperceptible floating away. While occupied with other things, the main thing disappeared. And it can happen to a church, it can happen to a pastor, it can happen to an individual, it can happen to anyone in their pursuit of spiritual things. They drift slowly away. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, and he strongly exhorted him. And he said to him, Timothy, hold Fast or hold tightly to the form of sound words which you have heard of me. He he doesn't just say remember it or recall it or don't forget it, but he tells him with urgency. He uses strong language to say, Timothy, if you don't hold on to those sound words in the form of things that you've learned of me, 
then you're going to drift away. And we see that it happened to this church in Sardis that they had by degrees turned their backs on the things that were a priority in life. And little by little, they had gone to a place where now Jesus looks in and he says that you are dead. But in verse 2, he says something that gives us a little bit of hope. I love when he uses this word. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, in context, you know, we understand clearly and plainly that, that when he says, I haven't found your works perfect, that he's saying that they're flawed, they're incomplete, they're cracked, it's not right, there's something wrong. And, and that's true. That, I mean, that's obvious as we look at this, is that they were screwed up as a church. But at the same time I see that there, I also hear in my ear the words that Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. It says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it or to bring it to perfection. And I love the fact that Jesus can look at this church and he can say, yeah, you're dead. Yeah, you ceased to be the spiritual power that I appointed you to be a long time ago, but I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not going to leave you to just dash upon the rocks of spiritual oblivion. I'm not going to abandon you to just go and die and into an eternity that's separate from me, but I'm going to go forth just like the father towards the prodigal and reach out and pull you back to myself and I will perfect that which concerns you. And it brings me great hope to know that that's the way God is with us, that he will reach out to us and that he'll grab us, that he isn't finished with us yet and that he's not going to give up on the person that's fading. And so he gives them a corrective exhortation. He gives them something that they can do. He tells them how to turn back and come back to this place where they're on fire again and operating fully in the things of him. He says in verse 2, be watchful. Be watchful. The first thing to do when you find yourself in this place of spiritual apathy or spiritual you know, death, if you would, is to become watchful. But what does it mean? What does Jesus telling them to do as he tells them to be watchful. Well, first of all, it means to be aware of the present state of the atmosphere spiritually. Be aware of that, that this is the tide, that there is a current. And I pray that you understand this. I hope you understand that this world that we live in right now is not moving towards the kingdom of God. The, the world and its systems and its ways is not crying out and saying, God, we want more of you and less of us. You must increase and we must decrease. The world and all of its tides and all of its currents is moving away from the things of God. And if we're not circumspect, if we're not aware of where we are and what's going on in the culture around us, then by degrees we will slowly drift away with the currents of the world. And so to be watchful part in part is to be aware of what's going on around us spiritually. To be aware of the atmosphere. And, and I've said it, I probably said it every week since we've started looking at uh, these churches and even the book of Revelation. Is that here in the Northeast, we face difficult days spiritually. The tide and the current is strong and people get swept away in it so quickly and, 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 and so fast it happens that the spiritual things in life become obscured and the things of the world come to the forefront and, and there's this divi division, this dividing, this double city that happens within our hearts. 
And so Jesus says the first step, if you want to be on guard against this or get back to where you're supposed to be, is first of all, be aware of what's going on around you spiritually. And second of all, hand in hand with that, is to be aware of your spiritual condition personally. To take account, how are you doing? You know, so often we, you know, we hear a message or we sit in church and we listen through other people's ears. We think, well, this message would be really good for my father. Or this message would be really good. Or this message would be really good for you. <laughs> you know, and, you know, whatever. And, and so how often do we take account of ourselves personally and say, how am I really doing that if Jesus were to look into my life, what would he say? Would he say that I have a name as though I live? That I sit in the pew amongst those that are alive? But yet, personally, inwardly, I'm dead. I don't want to be dead. So Jesus says, be watchful and understand what's going on around you. Understand also what's going on within you, spiritually, personally. Paul wrote to one of the churches and he told them, I love these words, he said to walk circumspectly. And and, and what he was saying is the same thing as to watch. In other words, to walk circumspectly is to know at all times what's going on around you, 360 degrees. To be sober and aware. Understand that an attack could come from any place. You know, sometimes we have deer pass through our yard, and they, they are circumspect. Because they, you know, they kind of move a little bit at a time, and they'll, you know, they'll eat, but they're always aware. And if they hear something rustle, the only thing they're not aware of is my car. Everybody has a weakness. And I don't know why they don't make the cars out of the same stuff they make the deers out of. Because the deers always survive the car crashes, you know, for some reason. But the cars don't. But, but you understand what I'm saying is, you know, you rustle in the trees and they look up. And they're constantly aware of what's going on around them. And Jesus says, listen, it is vital. And I'm telling you as a pastor, it is absolutely vital that in the days that we live in and in the society that we're a part of, that you understand what's going on around you spiritually and that you're aware of your condition personally because otherwise you will be swept away in the tide and the current of this culture and it will wipe you out. Understand the threats that exist around you and have your antennas up and be aware of it, to be watchful. It also means to be on guard against spiritual apathy. Like I said already before, it happens by degrees. It drifts slowly. Spiritual disciplines erode over time. One of the things I, I so appreciated that um, Captain Scott Smiley shared with us this past Sunday is when he talked about his, when he grew up in a Christian home and every day his mother checked in with him to make sure he had read his Bible before he walked out the door. And, and I just sat in the back and I thought, man, you know, we, we're raising our kids in, in a Christian home and they're still young and they're not at that point where they're running out the door. But that's something I don't want to have over. I don't want to just miss that one. You know, not that I didn't teach them that the daily to give yourself to the reading of the Bible. They see us doing it, but we don't put it upon them and say, well, this is just part of a, a discipline. You know, we don't want to lord it on them, but at the same time, we don't want to miss out on the opportunity to sow that into their lives spiritually. Well, how are you doing? Is there daily reading of the word of God going on in your life? Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Job said, I have esteemed thy word greater than my daily bread. 
And it's so vital and necessary, but it's one of those disciplines that erodes over time. Well, you know, I'll get to it. I've been meaning to. I know I need to. Prayer, fellowship, Bible study, service in the things of God. Sometimes we, you know, we think, well, what difference does it make if I serve or if I don't serve or if I pray or if I don't pray? Listen, regardless of what difference it makes on that side, it makes a difference in you. And so be watchful, be on guard against spiritual apathy. And then he says, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, begin again to move in the opposite direction. Rather than becoming weaker and weaker in spiritual things, and them growing more and more obscure, turn the other way and let them become stronger and stronger. Strengthen those areas of your life. Don't just set down the anchor and say, well, I'm not going to let it erode anymore, but rather turn the other way and strengthen the things which remain. Get stronger in the things of the faith, he tells them. And then in verse 3, he says, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. He says, remember the way things used to be. We've heard this before, haven't we? To the church in Ephesus, Jesus calling the churches to remember the way things used to be when you were hot and fervent for the things of God. I remember hearing a pastor say one time, if you can think of a time in your life when you were more devoted to Christ than you are right now, then you are backslidden. And there's truth in that statement. And I'm convicted as I say it, because I know that there's times in my life when I've been more on fire and more devoted to Christ than I am now. And yet when we sit in a place like this and we consider what's in front of us in the ages to come, what's the most important thing in life? But to be on fire for Christ and to be devoted to His purposes. But once we leave this Acropolis and we go into the other city, so easily we forget, right? Jesus says, remember, and then repent. Turn back. I've spoken to several people in the past you know, few weeks and, and months that have come and they've said, you know, you know we're hearing you and we, we sense that the Spirit of God is moving. How? I know that something's not right within my life, but how do I have more of the Lord? How do I have more of Christ? And I never know what to say. I mean, I can give you the cliche answer of, well, pray, you know, read your Bible, you know, do these, do these things. But listen, all I can tell you for sure is this, is that the fact that that is in your heart is indicative of the fact that the Spirit is speaking to you and saying there is more. And there's more that I want to do within your life. Maybe that's you here tonight, that you say, yes, you know, there's something in me that I want more of the Lord. Well, the very recognition of that is an indication that he's speaking to you personally. And it's also a warning that if you continue to drift away, you'll slowly diminish until all that's left of God's presence and his comfort is the name. But if you return to him, he'll revive you. He'll increase the fire and he'll work within your life. But if you continue to drift, look what he says in verse 3. He says, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, to me, that scares the daylights out of me, and it gets me excited. 
Because, you know, I don't want to get to that point where I'm like the guy who says the Lord delays his coming. You know, it could be years and years from now. And so I'm just not going to give heed to spirits. I don't want to be that guy. But it excites me because what this tells us clearly is that it doesn't have to come upon you as a thief. You know, one of the things that people love to say when you try to talk about the end times and the second coming, they'll just say, oh, no one knows the day or the hour. No one can know that. That's just stuff that you just can't know. No one can. No, no, no. You, you can't know the day and the hour. That's right. But Paul said, of the times and the seasons, you have no need that I should even write unto you, for you yourselves know the, the facts and the things concerning it. And Jesus looks at this church and he says that if you don't watch, I will come on you as a thief and you won't know. But if you're watching, it won't come on you as a thief. You'll say, Lord, we've been waiting. We've been ready in this. And he tells them, that his coming is near. But if you don't watch, you'll find yourself as the unwise virgins of Matthew chapter 25, the five that took no oil in their lamps. You'll find yourself as the faithless ones that Jesus spoke about that he finds asleep when he returns. And you'll be as those whom Jesus spoke of that were overcome by drunkenness or surfighting, just cloudiness of mind and the busyness and the vain pursuits and the cares of this life. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be like a thief in the night. But look at what he says in verse 4. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, I, I'm going to comment on these verses, but I want to point out to you here. Do you notice that three times in those two verses, Jesus again uses the word name? It, it gives to you a clue of what he's talking about. He doesn't do that in any of the other letters to the seven churches. But in this letter, where the problem is that they had a name as though they lived, but yet they were dead, he talks about their name now. Three times in two verses, he talks about their name. And he says that there's a few names, first of all, that have not defiled their garments, and they will walk in white, for they're worthy. But then he talks about those whose names will be blotted out of the book of life. And those that will be confessed, those names that will be confessed before the Father, which is in heaven. Now this is a tough verse. Because this opens up that can of worms of, well, can I lose my salvation? Can someone's name be blotted out of the book of life? That, that their name was written in it at one point, but now the name is blotted out of the book of life? Can, can that happen? Is that possible? Well, listen, I don't know. I know you want me to just say yes or no or try to sidestep around this in some way. But listen, I just want you to read that verse for what it says. He says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess it before the name of my father. Now, I read in one commentary, someone said that, suggested, no one can say anything, but suggested that every name of every man, woman, and child that ever lives is written in the book of life. And that upon rejection of Jesus Christ all the way unto death, it is only then that that name is blotted out. We don't know. But we do know that if your name isn't written in the book of life, then you have no part in eternal life. And thus... The importance of having your name written in his book. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. Can you lose your salvation or can you not? I don't know. 
Jesus said that no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand or out of my hand, that I'm holding you in the palms of my hand. But at the same time, I take heed because I don't want to drift away or be comfortable in a, in a state of compromise and say, well, I, I have eternal security, OSAS, you know, once saved, always saved. And so I can just live however I want and I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't want to live that way either. And so Jesus gives to them a very harsh warning here. I don't know what the answer is. I believe in his keeping power. I believe in his enabling power and making me victorious. But I never rest in a compromised state. What's Jesus saying to this church? And what's his message to us tonight as we wrap this up? The lesson that's given to us here as we look at this letter to the church in Sardis. Is that calling yourself a Christian carries about as much weight as calling yourself Wendy makes you a frosty. The name Christian, standing alone by itself, means absolutely nothing. Christianity is something that happens in the heart, in the secret place, in the devotional time, in the presence of the Lord. It's the people of God in fellowship with the Son of God and being filled with the Spirit of God. And that everything then that comes out of the life is what makes us Christians after that. What we do and what we say in response to what he is doing and working within our lives, that's what we are. See, if we call ourselves Christians or say that we go to Calvary Chapel or we call, say we're Baptists or any name that you want to give yourself that somehow links you to the Lord, that name is worth only what's going on within your heart. If the life of Christ isn't present within you and has no place in you, then the name is as far as it's going. And if what we do and say grows out of what we are because we're in his presence, then we never need to say anything. We don't need to even say, well, I'm a Christian because it's already obvious before we even speak it. First Peter chapter three, verse one, when Peter is talking to wives that have unsaved husbands. And I know that there's people in this room right now that, that, that there's, an uns, there's a wife saved and the husband is unsaved. And Peter says, this is how you win your unsaved husband. He says, it will be by your chaste lifestyle. It'll be by, the, he uses the word in the King James, conversation. It's lifestyle, the way that you live. It has nothing to do with what you say. It doesn't have anything to do with the track that you smushed in between the pieces of the bread and the sandwich. You know, the gospel tracks about when he goes to work and he eats the sandwich and he pulls out the track and, oh, you know. Or, or you know, the words that you speak as, uh, you know, as you're, you're trying to get him to come to church or the elbow in his side as you're sitting next to him in the pew. Then none of that's going to do it. But what is going to do it is that when you don't know that he's watching and you're living a devoted life before Christ in the home, in the secret place. And now he's not hearing what you're saying, but he's seeing what he's watching, that that's going to make a difference. And that the husband will be won by the chaste conversation or lifestyle of the wife. It's not what we say and call ourselves. It's what we do when we don't know that people are watching. That's what makes us Christians. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he tells him in chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says that you have fully known my doctrine, my, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my perseverance, and my afflictions. He doesn't say anything there about, he, you, don't, you know about my profession. You know what I've called myself. 
But he says, no, Timothy, you've examined me. You've seen the way I function, the way I operate, the way I live. And you know, based on what you've seen in watching my life, that I'm the real deal. And that Jesus is the one who delivered me out of afflictions. And it's by his, his grace and his power within my life that I have been effective. To the Corinthians, Paul would write in chapter 4, verse 20, he said that the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And he said, when I come, I'm not going to hear the words that you speak, but I'll know if you possess the power of God's spirit working within your life. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said that in that day when he comes, he said that there will be many that say, have we not? Spoken in your name, taught in your name, but they'll be turned away and he'll say, I never knew you. See, the problem starts in our lives when there's a double city. When Sardis becomes the reality within our lives. That we have the Acropolis, we have the spiritual life, we have, you know, that sacred thing that no one's going to take away. You know, that's my Acropolis, that's my, my God part of my life. And, and I have that. I have my spiritual life, but I also have my secular life. I have to do what I have to do during the day and during the week and the rest of the time. And there's a separation that grows between the two. The elevated plateau gets higher and higher and the city of commerce becomes lower and lower. And the divide grows between the two things until there's a completely separate life. And one is becoming more obscure and one is becoming stronger. There's two sets of standards. There's a standard for the spiritual life, but there's a standard for the secular life. Ethical standards, behavioral standards, business standards, they differ between the two places. Well, when I'm in church, I operate in honesty, but when I'm in the world, I'm a pirate, because that's the way you operate within the world. When I'm in, you know, in church, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a certain personality. I have my church personality. It's kind, it's yielding, it's helpful. I'm a servant. Galatians 5.22. But on Monday morning, when I go back into the world, then it's Galatians 5.20. I'm ruthless. I'm demanding. I'm despotic. I'm tyrannical because that's the way it is. It's a cutthroat world. And so there's a divide. There's a hierarchy on or higher, the, the upper one on Sundays. But during the week, it's a totally different thing. There's two different languages. On Sundays, I speak Christianese. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, brother. Bless God. It's a glorious day. But when I operate within the world, there's a whole separate language that I use. Words that are foreign to the church world. Words that I would never use in the church world. They're unacceptable in the church world. There's a double city that takes place. And when there's that double life, when there's that chasm that grows and the one becomes obscure and the other comes to the forefront, it's only a matter of time before Jesus can look on and he says, you have a name as though you live and yet you are dead. I was challenged as I considered these own things in closing. And Brad, you can come, we'll close. But I was challenged as I was considering and pondered the, pondering these things. And the, 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 the parable that Jesus told of the soils came into my mind. And I began to read Matthew chapter 13. And I think we're all familiar with that. You know, Jesus said that there was seed sown and some fell by the wayside and some fell among rocks and some fell among thorns and some fell on good ground. And then he interpreted that parable to his disciples and he said that the seed is the word of God. And some of the seed gets taken right away by the devil, the birds. They just come and, and it's in one ear and out the other. 
And some seeds, some hearts are like rocks. They, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root in themselves. And so as soon as persecution or tribulation comes, they just burn out. They're done with the things of God. But then that third soil, and this is the one that plagues me, and it continually plagues me, that third type of heart, that third condition that the word of God falls upon among the thorns. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew 13, 22. He says, He that receiveth seed among thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. And the reason why that plagues me so much, and it should plague all of us, I believe, in our day and in our condition. Is because if you really consider it, there was nothing at all that was wrong with the soil. There was no birds that were perched that were robbing the seed. There was no rocks. There was no tribulation or sun scorching it to cause it to burn out. There was nothing wrong with the soil at all. Otherwise, other than the thorns, it was perfectly good ground. And it was able to bear as much fruit as the soil in the forest. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The problem with that soil is that it was bedded or overgrown with thorns. The cares of this life. The deceitfulness and the desire for riches. And in Luke's gospel, he says, the lusts for other things. Choke the word and listen to the word. It says, he becometh unfruitful. It didn't start that way. And it doesn't have to end that way. But Jesus would say to you tonight, here, at this time, 2011, the last days, living where we live, the lifestyle that we have, the responsibilities that we have, Jesus would look right now at our church and he would say, be watchful. Be careful. Understand. Walk circumspectly. Know that there's a battle, that there's a tide, there's a current. And that if you're not watchful, you'll be carried away in it. And you will find yourself among those to whom it is said, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust for other things choked the word. And they became unfruitful. My prayer tonight is that that isn't the case for any of us here but that we would hear the word that Jesus says to this church, this church that was once alive, once strong, and that we would say, Lord, let it never be said of me, of my family, or of my church, that we became unfruitful because we were choked out in the things of this world. May God give us wisdom. May God search our hearts. Lord, as we stand and sing this last song, I pray that you would give us the grace to see clearly the condition that we're in. And by the power of your spirit moving upon our hearts, and moving through this house, you'd give us the ability to take account of ourselves. And that we would hear the sound of your voice calling to us saying, come back, return to me, strengthen the things which remain. I'll confess your name before my Father and before his holy angels. You'll walk with me in white. Lord, I pray that tonight in this house you would make us worthy. That you would wash us in the blood.
Bless us as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.